HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. Hey, 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 I'm Jimmy Carboni from Beer Sessions Radio. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. And amazingly enough, I actually have a studio in, I mean, I have a guest in the studio. I have a studio, too. No, I have a guest in the studio. Her name is Sasha Stashwick. That's right. Is that right? And um, since I didn't actually do a bio on you, tell us who you are. You're from the Natural Resources Defense Council. Tell us what your role is. I am. Um, I'm a senior advocate with NRDC's Food and Agriculture Program, uh-huh. which has been around for it's a pretty new program. It's been around for a good five years at this point, I think. Um, and I work on reforming the use of antibiotics in the livestock industry. Fantastic. Well, that's one of my favorite topics here. As most of my listeners know, it's like I'm kind of like, uh, um, you know, uh, beating a drum slowly. Been doing it now for uh, five years. And actually, it's amazing. Stuff is starting to really happen. Yeah. And even in the last two or three years, I'm kind of like blown away by how quickly it's kind of snowballing. Um, because when I first started attending meat industry conferences and, and really, you know, checking into this, um, no, first of all, no one in mainstream media was even talking about it. It wasn't on the radar. And second, Secondly, um, companies, you know, meat companies were like, banish antibiotics from the food. Are you kidding me? Do you realize how much that would cost? Do you have any understanding of what it takes to feed all these people? And oh, my God. And, uh, you know, hysteria ensued. And I am not kidding you. Um, and uh, and now it's like uh, here we had a few months ago, I had Gail Hansen on from Pew to talk about how Tyson has, or but rather Purdue has uh, stopped injecting their eggs with gentamicin. And um, Purdue and Tyson both have started reducing their antibiotic uh, load in their poultry flocks uh, across the board. So it's really, it's, it's huge. Um, I'd like to see the pork and cattle industry follow suit as quickly as the poultry industry is. But tell us a little bit about what you're doing and, and why, why have you guys chosen to uh, fixate on poultry in particular and, and then sort of obviously move out to the other uh, meat sectors? Yeah, well, first, thanks for having me on. And you mentioned kind oh of God, beating, a, beating a drum. And I think 
um, it takes a lot of drums beating, and a lot of dr- drums have been beating on a lot of different fronts for mm. for really you know over a decade now. And you're right; I think we're we're finally seeing. It feels like something's happening. Um, yeah. You know, we, you know, it takes drums beating on the legal front in RDC. Um, couple of years ago, uh, went to court and actually uh, went to federal court suing the Food and Drug Administration, which is the federal agency responsible for regulating antibiotics use across this industry. And we actually, you know, won twice in, in, in federal court, right. um, basically saying, you know, you're the regulator, you're responsible, you have to actually protect public health and, mm-hmm. and regulate use of these drugs. So there's sort of, you know, the, the fight in the courts, I think there's... Um, the fight happening at the federal level. We have, you know, some key pieces of legislation that have been introduced um, in in the Congress. We have, yeah, but um, some of them have been kicking around the PAMTA Act, preservation of, uh, you know, yeah. medicine, whatever. Louis Slaughter's thing has been in there, kicking around for what eight, nine years now. That's and right. Then, but uh, I Henry think... Waxman had another piece of legislation that he introduced two or three years ago that was also designed to protect antibiotics from overuse. And and really, uh, none of these guys want to vote on any of this. Well, I think. The, the the point is that it takes action on a lot of fronts, I think, is mm-hmm. sort of my, you know, my point. Um, and, yes. you know, uh, uh, it takes time. It takes raising awareness. And, you know, we see action in the courts. We see action in the Congress. We see action now in states where states are basically saying, you know, we're going to pass. We're going to try and pass legislation to, mm-hmm. to regulate um, these drugs in, in this industry. And then um, I think more than anything else, we're seeing a tremendous consumer trend, I think. That's where um, I see the real change. You know, right from. now, um, the, th- these numbers might be a couple of years old, but I think um, the antibiotic-free meat is about 5% of the current market. But mm-hmm. I think as of 2012, it was um, it had grown 25% over the previous three years. So right. it's sort of starting from a small base, but it's growing way faster than the conventional industry. You know, we see overall meat consumption in the U.S. declining. Absolutely. And I hear from the large meat buyers that I talk to all the time that they see conventional sales either declining or flatlining, but where they really see growth is in the sort of more responsibly healthier um more responsibly produced and healthier right. meat options, what, like what antibiotic was called and still called niche market, um, but soon to become mainstream. Obviously, well, that, that's that's yeah. the hope is that mm-hmm. you know um, I think antibiotic resistance is um, uh, it's sort of a community problem. You know, we're not going to solve it if five percent of the market becomes antibiotic free. Yeah. We really need. Um, a, a much bigger, more wholesale change uh, in this industry and, and in the way antibiotics are used in human medicine, where we've seen a lot of Absolutely. progress, too. Yes. Um, and so it's not really enough for this to remain a niche issue. We really have to raise the floor across the whole industry so that mm-hmm. this becomes standard practice in the industry so that we're, you know, we ensure that antibiotics are being used safely mm-hmm. um, across the majority of meat production, not just you know some small percentage that only yeah. some consumers can access. That's right. Um, you know, you mentioned those two lawsuits that the NRDC brought against the FDA, and you won those lawsuits, and yet all we got were voluntary guidelines. How did that happen? Yeah, well, the FDA, unfortunately, instead of you know taking action and taking meaningful action, and um, you know doing what it's meant to do as the what regulator for it to do. Yeah. Um, they actually appealed those decisions. Um, and, uh, what they put out instead were these voluntary guidelines that you mentioned. And so I think, um, you know, we, ha- you know, we'll have to see how things play out, but, um, you know, our, our concern is that a, they are voluntary, um, for the right. pharmaceutical industry and the meat industry alike. Um, and, uh, they also contain some really, um, I think, concerning uh, loopholes. And maybe we should just take a step back and talk about why 
uh, livestock producers use antibiotics uh, in the first place? Well, I think most listeners recognize that you know most livestock is raised in, in highly concentrated uh, operations where they're very close together, and disease can spread like wildfire throughout, and plus the sanitation issues uh, are also of concern. And in the case of cattle, for instance, uh, even the diet of corn, which is what most cattle are finished off with, is really bad for their guts, right? So, um, And so that also contributes to the growth of pathogens pathogens within a, a herd or a flock. Yeah. So, so what you're describing is um, something the industry calls disease prevention. So yes. the idea is basically that the animals are living in conditions that put them under such um, pr- disease pressure. They're so likely to get sick because mm-hmm. they're crowded and stressed um, and often in really unsanitary conditions. I mean, they're, you know, in their own manure, there's bacteria everywhere um, that um, the antibiotics are being used prophylactically. So right. it's like, For you know, sometimes we, sometimes we joke that, like, you know, we wouldn't put antibiotics in our kids' cereal in the morning just because they're going off to school and could get sick. Right. And it's sort of the same thing. You know, the animals are being fed antibiotics every day in their food and water in, in many instances. Um, and it's to prevent them um, from from being sick. And so this is a routine use that we know, you know, we know uh, when we go to the doctor and we have an infection and the doctor prescribes us antibiotics, they'll often, well, they should always admonish us to finish our course of antibiotics. Because the concern is that, you know, every time you use an antibiotic, the bacteria can breed resistance to it. Um, I think what and we you have want to be sure you wipe out all the bacteria exactly. by taking the full course of your meds. Exactly. Right. So, but what we see in the livestock industry is that basically many millions of animals a day are, you know, quote unquote, not finishing their course right. of antibiotics. Um, so, so, so one big use is disease prevention. Well, you know, which, which you mentioned, I think, um, back in the 1950s, farmers also discovered that feeding antibiotics to animals sort of day in, day out also made them grow fatter faster. Right. Um, and it improves what the industry calls feed efficiency. So mm-hmm. feed is often one of the highest cost inputs into the production model. And so if you can, um, get the animals to slaughter weight as quickly as possible. You know, it, you it helps money. your bottom line. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's actually like, uh, you know, there's a lot of literature now um, showing that, that it, you know, the antibiotics aren't even that effective at doing that anymore. But, it's, it, but it became industry, it became standard yeah, um, in a lot of parts of the industry. industry practice, absolutely. And that's called growth promotion. So it's really right. these two uses, growth promotion and disease prevention, that we're concerned about. And the FDA voluntary guidelines said, okay, you know, you can't use antibiotics for growth promotion. Right. But and it, that has to come off the label that's right. of the antibiotic. That's right. And it has to be prescribed. That's right. But a lot of a lot of these drugs are actually labeled for both uses. They're labeled right. both for growth promotion and disease prevention. And our concern because the there is um, in the voluntary guidelines there um, is this loophole around disease prevention uses. Right. Our big concern is that you're going to have the same drugs, you know, sort of the same drug use practices sure. persist just by a different name. So exactly. before they were giving the drugs and calling it for growth promotion, now they'll just call it for disease prevention. You know? right. And we won't really see material changes to um, drug use in the industry. And, you know, um, I haven't looked at this data uh, for a while, but, you know, FDA tracks, you know, the, you know, the overall amounts of the drugs being used. pounds and, of drugs, And right. it's, it's, it's trending upward in kind of an alarming way. Um, Is that right? 
Yeah, um, we're, yeah, we're just seeing you know more and more drugs being used. It's, it's sort of going in the wrong direction. Is, is, is sort really, of the point. Sasha, yeah. you'll have to send me some information yeah. on that. That's really interesting. I hadn't heard that. Yeah, um, you know, one of the things about um, changing over the system because we do, um, you know, since we do raise our animals primarily in these confined areas, um, even if they're the cleanest and you could eat off the floor, you're still you still got a lot of bodies in one small place. And, um, you know, a lot of, uh, of meat companies or industry people that I've talked to have said, well, it would cost a fortune to change that model. And where are we going to get the space? And how are we going to do this, uh, you know, without antibiotics? You know, don't you realize we have, we're going to have 9 billion people more on this planet by 2050? And we're going to feed It's all on us. It's all our problem. Um, but there is a cost associated with uh, using a different uh, protocol for animals. And let's talk a little bit about what that's going to mean in terms of the consumer and, and also in terms of, say, the contract growers that we were discussing before the show um, who are essentially indentured serfs. And, you know, if they have to pay more for their feed, I don't know if they have to pay for their feed. Do they pay for their feed? So, well, let's just take a step let's back. Let's talk I, about poultry Yeah, that's I mean, your expertise. I think... I think um, when you talk about cost, I think one important thing that gets lost is the cost we bear as a society today as a result of antibiotic resistance. Right. So, um, you know, we're seeing, you know, millions of people get sick with antibiotic-resistant infections every year. 23,000 mm-hmm. people a year die. Yeah. And um, the latest numbers um, that, we, you know, we put out is that, you know, it costs us about $55 billion a year. Um, in lost productivity and sort of hospital costs. So there's a tremendous cost to the economy um, of this public health crisis of antibiotic resistance. And, you know, uh, this isn't just me saying it's a public health crisis. This is the World Health Organization and the Centers for Disease Control. Exactly. Um, uh, They sort of identified it as top five public health uh, crises uh, in the world right now. Um, (laughs) So there's a really, you know, tremendous cost to business as usual. Um, I think in terms of cost to um, making these changes in the industry, you know, uh, well, I'll just say that, you know, that there are farmers all over the country that every day show us that you can do this a different way. Mm -hmm. Um, And you mentioned, you know, the, the, the poultry industry, Um, you know, we have now the third largest poultry company uh, in the country, Purdue Farms. Um, which has eliminated, they've said that they've eliminated um, use of medically important antibiotics. These are the drugs that are important to human medicine right? in 95% of their operations. Right. So this isn't, you know, some kind of like yeah. niche uh, company that you can really marginalize here in this conversation. This is one of the largest, right. um, you know, uh, poultry companies, uh, in the country saying that they're already doing this. Mm -hmm. Um, And the sky has not fallen. Um, You know, (laughs) their flocks have not died. Yeah, I think, I think, especially in the, one reason we focus on the poultry industry is because we think that that's the place where we can see the most immediate uh, change. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the, the literature tells us that, you know, it's a couple pennies per pound more to raise chicken antibiotic free. Um, That's the literature, you know, I have conversations with meat buyers, um, you know, 
from you know big mainstream companies that you would have heard of, you know, and they they, they you know they corroborate that. You know, they're not going to tell me exactly what they pay for their product, right. but they basically say you know it's you know it's 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 a couple of pennies per pound. You know, sometimes you know very very close to conventional prices. Uh-huh. And um, if you just go out into the marketplace, I know Consumers Union. Um, it's a couple of years ago now. I think in 2012. They went out and they did a survey mm-hmm. of supermarket chicken and they just, you know, dropped into supermarkets all over the country and just took a look at what was available and how much right. it cost. And, you know, they found that, you know, you can find antibiotic free chicken now. Sure. You all can around. buy harvest land. Um, <laughs> and oftentimes it's, you know, at a price point that's really comparable to conventional chicken. Um, if not, I think in a few instances they actually found antibiotic free chicken being sold for cheaper. So I think... Um, the poultry industry, from our perspective, is just a place where we could see dramatic decreases in uh, drug use, right. um, you know, without, you know, really sort of upending the, you know, the, the industrial model, the, the, the model. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, most most of the producers are focusing on alternative practices to just keep the guts of the birds healthy. So they're focusing on things like vaccines and probiotics. I think it's also important to look at just general animal husbandry, you know, giving mm-hmm. animals a little Sanitation. bit more space, keeping the barns a little bit cleaner, um, you know, things like that. And um, it's, I think there's just a lot of evidence now, um, both in the literature and just sort of coming out of one of the biggest poultry producers in the country right. that that is saying that this isn't just some sort of pie in the sky idea. This is doable and it's happening we're doing it you know yeah it did take uh purdue according to their literature it took them 12 years to change over from injecting their eggs with gentamicin yeah which struck me as an incredibly long time to to you know to work on a project like that given the short lifespan of chickens if you know what i mean it's like they grow pretty fast i mean you can go through generations pretty quickly that's actually another reason why you can uh we sort of focus on poultry is uh just you know the the, the lifespan of a chicken is so much shorter. So you can right. kind of like, you, you can, can make see. changes yeah, sooner. And, you know, Tyson also just on the heels of the Purdue announcement last year, Tyson came out and announced that they are no longer injecting gentamicin into eggs at their 35 hatcheries. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, to, to your point about drumbeat and momentum, I think that's exactly what we're pushing for. And that's exactly what we're starting to see in the industry in particular with poultry. Yeah. And the other thing about poultry that I think it's worth noting is that a lot of the new um, antibiotic-resistant pathogens that have come out do come have emerged from specifically the poultry sector. Salmonella heidelberg, Salmonella tymphimorium. Those are poultry diseases. They are not necessarily found uh, in anywhere near the same numbers if I'm I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, I haven't seen that those diseases being reported. Um, some of the Campylobacters that have come come out that are uh, micro um, antibiotic resistance also come from the poultry sector more than any other sector of livestock, and Ooh. I. I think that's an issue that needs to sort of be addressed a little bit. You know, like, let's talk about why that is. I mean, why are they such vectors as opposed to other animal husbandry? Issues? Well, there are certain bacteria that are just prevalent on chicken. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's important to distinguish between bacteria and antibiotic-resistant bacteria. Right. I think um, there's going to be bacteria on all chicken. Of course. Um, on organic chicken, too, and everything, you know, um, I think the scary part is when that bacteria is antibiotic resistant. And, you know, last year we saw a really large outbreak of Salmonella Heidelberg on Foster Farms chicken right. um, out west. And it spread to, you know, I think 23 plus states in the country. Oh, yeah, and it went on for like a year. Yeah, more than a year. Um, and, um, you know, we also see evidence of antibiotic resistant urinary tract infections, um, specifically women, coming yes. from, you know, E. coli from chicken. So, um 
Yeah. I, I, you know, I think... Uh, uh, is that because we eat so much chicken? Or is it because it's just they have... That bacteria is more prevalent in those animals because of that, their protocols? Or, you know, I'm, I'm trying to, like, pin down sort of why we haven't seen kind of the same explosion of antibiotic-resistant pathogens in other sectors of the meat industry. Well, I Americans, I actually don't know. I mean, Americans do eat more chicken <laughs> than, uh-huh. um, than other meats. Right. Um, but, you know, we see uh, methicillin-resistant staph infections um, sure. also, MRSA, coming out of, you know, being linked to a pork facility yeah. Yeah, as well. Um, so I think, you know, it, it's, you know, this problem is not exclusive to the livestock industry. You know, no. antibiotic misuse and overuse in human medicine is a big problem as well. Um, and we see efforts underway in the medical community to improve antibiotic stewardship. I think the point is that, you know, 80% of the antibiotics uh, in the U.S. don't go to human medicine. They go to the livestock industry. Right. And so we're just not going to be able to solve this problem unless there's a commensurate push right. um, on, on the livestock side of things. So, and um, livestock the, people say that it's really all about the medical community screwing up. Well, Believe me, I have heard so many people point the finger at medicine as opposed to, what, what do you mean? We, only 17... I remember Dick Raymond from, you know, former FSIS uh, undersecretary saying something like, well, you know, if you really want to parse this out, only 17% of the antibiotics that are medically important to humans are going into, um, you know, into the livestock community. And so how can you really blame livestock for this? It's really all about what we're doing in the hospitals and doctor's offices. I mean, I think the point is that we have to uh, practice good antibiotic stewardship sort of on both sides of the equation. And we're not going to solve the problem unless we are serious about it, um, you know, across the board, like, you know, like you're saying. So I think, um, you know, to date there um we just haven't seen the same kind of push come out of the livestock industry to promote good mm-hmm. antibiotic stewardship and you know unfortunately um it's it's the drug use in the industry is is a black box you know there the 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 companies are not required to be transparent or report about you know what drugs they're using for what purposes and what quantities we just we we're we're missing a lot of really key uh, data because you know the industry is not required to mm. to to report on it. But I think that when you look at feed tickets, you can derive that information. That's what they've told me. It's like, well, just look at the feed tickets, and you'll see how much is going into what. Because the feed tickets do say if there's antibiotics in those in their rations to some degree. But there's still a lot of things that we don't know mm-hmm. about um, you know antibiotics use in specific supply chains because right. they're allowed to keep it a secret. Right, right. Basically. Well, let's take a short break, right, Jack? Um, and we'll have a little sponsor drop, and we'll be right back with Sasha Stashwick to talk more about antibiotics in the food chain and um, what and the good news that's coming out of industry.
This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Kane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Kane5.com. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and today I'm talking uh, with my guest, Sasha Stashwick, from the Natural Resources Defense Council, and we're talking about antibiotics, my favorite topic, as you all know. (laughs) I'm just a walking, talking, fountain of information about antibiotics in the food chain. But we were having such a cool conversation at the bar before, because we are in the back of a bar here, folks, in case you didn't know that. We're at Roberta's Restaurant. That's our secret. And um, Yeah, right, and we'll be repairing thither for an excellent lunch after this. Um, but um, one of the things that we were discussing is, is kind of the economics and, the, and what was sort of the niche aspect of these antibiotic-free or organic meats growing its market share in a big way. And I wondered if you could like discuss a little bit about that. And also, um, you mentioned something about how uh, companies were actually using that as an excuse to mark their prices up, even though the actual fundamental costs of raising animals without antibiotics was not as great as, or at least that's what I was understanding you to say, was not as great as what the markup might have been. Well, it's hard to tell because, you know, right now, I think part of the problem is that these are seen as niche products. And I think Mm -hmm. what NRDC wants to accomplish is really raising the floor across the entire industry so that this becomes the norm. This becomes, you know, much more of a mainstream product. I think what we see today is that you go into a grocery store, for example, and, you know, you have a whole aisle of conventional chicken and other meats, and then you might have like one rarefied case off to the side with your like organic and antibiotic free options. And, um, you know, I, 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 you know, I haven't looked at any kind of, you know, um, sort of national data on this, but I think a lot of people's sense is that, the, the the cost that is reflected to consumers in any given market is just what that market will bear. Uh-huh. Um, the mar- you know the, the 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 stores are able to to mark that product up um, as compared to conventional meat, just based on what consumers in that market might might That's pay. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, and- I'm willing to pay more for that. And I think a lot of consumers are. So that's something that we know for sure, right? We've, we've seen yeah. a tremendous number of surveys of consumers that basically say that they want these more responsibly produced, healthier, safer meat options, and they are willing to pay more for them. I think that the idea is that, you know, um, if and when um, something like antibiotic-free chicken um, moves from being a niche product to a mainstream product, you know, um, the hope is that, you know, the prices will come down overall. Um, you know, our goal is really to make this a product that is accessible to all Americans, to Absolutely. all consumers, um, not just to an elite few. So I think that, right. that that's that's really an important part of this conversation, you know, just, you know, raising the floor across the entire industry. I think you'll hear a lot of times from big supermarkets, the big, you know, uh, sort of large buyers, large retailers across the country that, you know, they, they offer their consumers choices. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, again, having this problem solved in a niche sector of the industry is is not going to cut it in terms of really addressing the public health threat of antibiotic resistance. You know, we really need to right. reform these practices uh, 
across the industry and um, a big part of that is having the largest buyers go out to their suppliers and say, you know, we want you to make these changes in the supply chain. The, the largest buyers in the system have a tremendous amount of power. They can really reach down through their supply chains and really impact practices on the farm. And I think it's really important to, you know, be holding them responsible for for doing that. Um, and, you know, you... Um, uh, I think you asked about sort of the the, the companies that um, yeah, I definitely are, are, are doing about, that. Yeah. And so the fun thing about my job is that I get to talk to a lot of the folks that have either already, you know, made these changes in their supply chains. They were sort of the pioneers, you know, about a right. decade plus ago. Right. They, like they the went Chipotle. out. The Chipotle is the Panera Breads right. of the world. You know, they, they, you know, they went out and they really built out these supply chains. And um, but now you see that their ranks are being joined by a lot of other, you know, big mainstream companies, you know, Carl's Jr., um, uh-huh. Chick-fil-A recently yeah. made a commitment that over the next five years they're going to phase out antibiotics in their supply chains. And so um, I think what you're seeing is, um, you know, these sort of big mainstream companies that, you know, everyone's heard of that are making their sourcing practices, they're putting their sourcing practices front and center in their marketing. They're, right. they're you know, they are really, you know, telling their consumers, they're, they're listening to their consumers. Their yeah. consumers are telling them that they want more of these options available to them. They're responding in a, in, in a real way. It is having a transformational impact on, on the marketplace. And they're seeing a tremendous amount of success doing it. Right. Um, you can just sort of look at the financial success of the, you know, the, the, the Chipotle's of the world, the Shake Shacks of the world. Um, That's right. You know, these companies are, you know, they're racing to the top in a sense um, in a way that I think the, the traditional fast food industry can only envy. Um, and I think, I think it's really indicative of, of an important trend, you know, particularly um, particularly among, you know, millennial consumers, you know, consumers Absolutely. ages, you know, around 18 to 34. I'm kind of like on the high end of that. Yeah. Um, but folks that are, they really care about how the food that they're eating is made. They're willing to pay more for more responsibly produced products. Um, and right. they're rewarding these companies financially, you yeah. know, um, with, with their, with their business. With their loyalty. So that's right. I think that's, you know, uh, uh, if that doesn't show the industry what's going, you know, what's going forward, I don't, I, you know, the resistance of the conventional meat industry is just mind blowing to me about this, and I can only assume that it is because so much of their product is exported to countries where these are not issues, um, and I'm not talking about Western Europe, but I'm talking about, um, you know, uh, South Asia, Southeast Asia, you know, place developing countries where beef is is increasingly on the menu where it has never been before, um, and people are starting to, you know, see that 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 particular uh, center of the plate item is what they want as a center of a plate. They're sort of abandoning and their own um, typical menus and, and adopting more of an American model. But it, but what you're saying about these large companies, I, I think that ties right into sort of why you're on this show today, and that's because um, McDonald's has a new chief sustainability officer. Chief executive chief officer. Chief executive officer, who, and it's going to be... Um, you know, an interesting interlude in seeing where he directs the country in terms of uh, exploiting that trend of wanting more transparency about your sourcing um, and bringing more people back into the McDonald's fold. Because, I mean, I think everyone has seen the headlines that McDonald's is flatlining. And um, and what this guy does is going to be really interesting going forward. So what's your sense of, of who this man is and where he's going to take the company? Yeah, so the new CEO of McDonald's is named Steve Easterbrook. Today is his first day on the job. He's coming from running their U.K., 
uh, operations. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, while I don't, you know, I, I can't speak to, um, you know, consumers in other parts of the world, but, you know, um, what I was speaking to was sort of trends amongst, you know, American consumers here. Yes. And I think the point is that, you know, the 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 industry the, the on the production side, sort of the large meat producers, you know, they're only going to resist to the point where their largest buyers... Um, want something different. And I think right. that's really the opportunity for McDonald's right now. You know, McDonald's, um, I think, uh, uh, it, you know, in, in the media, it's been estimated that they purchase something like 1.5 to 2% of the beef that's in the right. country, even more chicken. They're just a tremendous, I don't think this will come as a shock to any of your listeners. They're right. just one of the largest buyers of meat in the country. Yeah. And Steve Easterbrook is now at the helm of this, you know, enormous um, (laughs) supply chain with a tremendous amount of leverage. And, um, yeah, I mean, I also have seen the headlines about, you know, sales at at McDonald's, um, you know, hurting recently. Yeah. And I think that, you know, there's there's a tremendous opportunity for him um, and for the company right now to potentially, you know, really take on this issue um and you know we think chicken is a great place for 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 a company like mcdonald's to start um you know uh again we we don't we aren't able to know um specifically about practices in a lot of these supply chains but if mcdonald's meat supply chains are similar to um, what typically happens in the industry, then, you know, we know that a lot of drugs are being used in, in producing their meat. And so mm-hmm. there's this huge opportunity for them to, you know, put out a policy that basically says, you know, you, you have to use these drugs safely. You can only use them as they were intended, which is to treat sick animals. You can't use them routinely um, for non-therapeutic purposes, whether that's disease prevention or growth promotion. And, you know, in doing that, you know, I think uh, not only does McDonald's have the opportunity to kind of set themselves apart from the fast food pack, but they could just, that decision could reverberate really across the industry and have a really um, material, important impact on, on drug use, uh, you know, in, in the meat industry. So yeah, I think um, it's, it's just an exciting time. I think he, um, you know, from the reading I've done about him, he, uh, he put in place some, um, you know, exciting, um, programs in terms of sustainable sourcing in the UK. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of hope right now that he's going to do something similar here and that he's going to really prioritize this issue because I think people really see this as an opportunity for them to differentiate themselves. Yeah. Well, you know, I was fascinated when I was um, reading about the uh, the change in leadership at McDonald's. I, I went to their corporate page and uh, they have a tab for sustainability and they had a really, um, you know, remarkably forward-thinking statement uh, that they published in 2003 about their sustainability goals. Now, it, it related mostly to cattle. Um, and indeed, uh, McDonald's were, was the, the, the entity that hired Temple Grandin to redesign their beef production, you know, their, the guys that they were buying from to reduce the stress for animals. Um, so they've had sustainability and they've had animal welfare issues on their radar for quite a long time. And um, it's surprising to me that they haven't made more of an effort to market themselves as being the forward thinkers that they have been. Now, how much they enforce those, I mean, they had a whole section on antibiotic use. 
<clears throat> which was exactly what you just said, that they wanted to phase out, you know, the routine use of antibiotics for growth promotion and disease prevention, blah, blah, blah. This is back in 2007 they're saying this. Well, it's actually 2003. And it, it's, or 2003 it, yeah, for that, yeah. It, it's, it's a good point. So McDonald's put out a global policy on antibiotics use in its supply chains in 2003. And right. at that point, I would say um, that uh, was a real leadership position. Um, you know, compared to their peers, it was really far, far compared and away. Nobody um, was talking about it then. Yeah, uh, more, you know, uh, sort of comprehensive. They, you know, they, they acknowledge this is a big public health problem. They acknowledge the role that market players like themselves, you know, have. Right. Um, and uh, they, they put out um, what was really sort of a leadership policy at the time. Right. Um, it prohibited the use of antibiotics for growth promotion. Around the disease prevention uses, it was more vague. And, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's sort of been reported already that, you know, we, um, you know, we, we've come in and we've sort of talked to them about that. We've sort of, we've said, you know, here's where we see the, um, the potential loopholes in your policy. Here are mm -hmm. sort of the places where you could tighten up this language, um, to really get the, I don't know, the biggest bang for your buck in terms right. of um, some key reforms to your policy that could reestablish you as a leader. You know, the world has sort of moved on since 2003, um, I think, um, you know, but with, you know, with, with, with um, uh, some strengthening to their existing policy, they could really once again um, be an industry leader the way that they were in 2003. And I think that is... That's our hope for uh, yeah. for the new for the new CEO. I'm hoping this is at the top of his agenda. And you know, I'll just give a quick plug. Um, NRDC, you know, is going to have um, you know a petition, um, basically asking him to um, commit to uh, safe antibiotics use practices in his meat supply chains. And I don't know if it's up yet, but you should be able to find it. You know, uh, hopefully later today on uh, I think it's nrdc.org backslash antibiotics. You should be mm -hmm. able to see that petition. And it's just you know people you know telling him that you know this is important to them, and you know they hope that he can make that commitment. Yeah, I, I mean I think it's you know when I was reading that stuff, I was just blown away. And then in greenbiz.com, which is a wonderful publication. <clears throat> Um, that uh, was the, was the they were actually the people that turned me on to the global roundtable for sustainable beef of which McDonald's is a founding member. Yep. Um, and this is another interesting thing. Now they just published their criteria for sustainable beef, and they're it's interesting because they they had to accommodate for all the different environments and the different ecosystems regions, yeah. and regions in which uh, livestock is raised and and slaughtered for you know meat around the world. Um, so what works in New Zealand or Australia is not necessarily going to work in the United States and vice versa. So, I mean, there's some interesting sort of wiggle room around there. But um, And their their antibiotic language, I thought, was very squishy. I'm sure you read that, right? Yeah. It's like it's not really as um, robust as one would hope. <clears throat> yeah, so I think, you know, I, I, don't, I don't personally um, work on beef, but I, I, you know, I'm in regular touch with my colleagues who um, have been following this process for... Sure. Many, many years now. And I think, you know, from NRDC's perspective, I think the the endeavor is really to be commended. They've sort of brought all these stakeholders to the table, including yeah. the producers. And it's really, um, 
you know, it's really important that McDonald's is there basically putting a signal out to the marketplace saying that, you know, we want to buy a sustainable product. I think in and of itself, right. that's 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 really important and to be commended. I think, um, you know, uh, there's a lot of concerns when you talk about sustainability. You know, there's, there's concerns around, you know, What's um, the definition? Eco- e- ecosystem impacts, public health impacts, social impacts, you know, workers' I, rights. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I focus Some on, stuff. you know, antibiotics use. And I think you're right from 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 that perspective. I think we were disappointed. Um, I think that the, the guidelines around antibiotics use, um, while they prohibit use of antibiotics for growth promotion, um, they still allow them for you know prophylactic disease prevention. Right. And you know, as we sort of discussed uh, earlier in the show. Um, that's you know, essentially that, that's, just a bait and switch. <laughs> well, I don't know if it's I don't know if it's always a bait and switch, but it's 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 um, uh, it's it's a it's it's a serious concern because sure. you know it, it allows for the routine use of these antibiotics. Uh, we know that that contributes to you know breeding antibiotic resistant bacteria. Um, people might have heard the word superbugs. You know these are dangerous yes. resistant bacteria, and we know that these bacteria um, they don't stay in those livestock facilities. They escape from those facilities in lots of different ways. Sure. You know, on the soil and water and the air, they colonize workers. Um, it's it's I think it's kind of creepy, but the bacteria actually can share uh, resistant genetic traits with each other. Yes, they do. So w- what we're doing, I kind of think of it as like um, antibiotic resistant pollution in the environment. That's a great you know, way of putting it. We're Sasha. sort of um, the, the 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 scientific community calls it reservoirs of resistance, and I tend yeah. to think that doesn't mean anything to regular people. Um, but so you know, it's it's really just increasing that resistant pollution in our environment and it's you know we we know that it gets into our communities and it makes people sick so you know i think um from you know from that perspective i think that there's you know there's there's things to commend about the global roundtable but specifically on antibiotics i think that there's still work to be done well so people should know actually that they have just revised their criteria and they're putting them out for public comment this month and so if you want to go to the Global Roundtable for um, Sustainable Beef website, <clears throat> you can read those uh, criteria <laughs> and you can register your own comments about it. And I urge everyone to take part in this because, yeah. you know, it's our food and we want what we want. And, you know, you've got to let these people know uh, what it is that you want and not expect uh, producers to be mind readers or to make gr- vast changes in their uh, protocols that many of them have been using for, you know, for generations and it's worked fine for them. And why can't we keep doing it? I mean, there's very much that mentality and that mindset. And I think it's really important to bring, um, you know, the consumer concerns to, to those producers to let them understand, because otherwise you have, and this I see a lot is literally people saying things like, this is all part of an agenda to take meat off the plate of American <laughs> citizens. I mean, we have seen this over and over again. I'm sure you've seen it, too. In the trades, they're always writing. The uh, the publisher, the editor-in-chief, Mary Sukup of um, Drover's Cattle Network, when she was writing about the AWARE Act, which was the legislation that uh, was introduced following Michael Moss's expose on the animal research centers, uh, and you know what he what was characterized as terrible animal abuse, and she's like, this is just all part of the agenda of you know HSUS and mercy for animals and the ASPCA to take to ruin our industry and take meat away from consumers. I was just like, Mary, you want to come on the show? Uh uh-uh. uh I mean, <laughs> I think the message is that you know we want you know meat to be affordable and available but also you know safe and healthy and responsibly yeah. produced uh safe for us for the animals for the planet and i think you know 
again, there are producers of, you know, lots of different sizes from the sort of right. smallest scale farm to, you know, much, you know, larger um, uh, production systems that, you know, show us that, that this can be done. And, you know, we have examples from around the world, from around the country. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I think the more, you know, I think the more consumers demand this, um, you know, there, we're already seeing uh, a market response to that. I think it's really important for consumers to be really putting the responsibility at the feet of the largest buyers in the system. So companies like McDonald's have, have a responsibility and, you know, they have the relationship with their consumers and consumers um, have a lot of power, right? Like we can vote with our, with our wallets and these big buyers will respond. Um, But I, at the same time, um, just to kind of bring this discussion full circle and just because we are, um, you know, a policy-oriented organization. You know, I, I don't think it's always fair to place all of the responsibility at the feet of consumers. You know, yes, it's important to vote with your wallet, but it's also important to vote with your vote. And, you know, we have a federal right. regulator that is responsible for protecting our health and regulating drug use in this industry. It's really important that they hear from us, that our legislators hear from us. It's not going to be enough um, to wait for, you know, consumers to drive all the change in this industry. You know, we, you know, this is, again, a top five public health crisis. We need yeah. to move a lot more quickly. Um, and so but, it's you know, important for governments to act as well. I, well, nobody's going to dispute that it's important for governments to act responsibly, but they haven't. I mean, the fact is the FDA, as we discussed before, has been dragging their feet on this stuff since 1977, which was the first time that they published a paper that said to the meat industry, you can't do this anymore. And it went nowhere. And that legislation has gone nowhere. Um, So asking lawmakers to advocate on behalf of the public um, has been remarkably unsuccessful. And that's the thing that I find the most frustrating about this. We, with our tax dollars, are funding the FDA. They are grotesquely underfunded for even regulating and managing and supervising the use of antibiotics in the livestock system. Uh, they don't apparently seem to take it as seriously as a public health hazard as, you know, everyone else around the world does. I mean, it's sort of like, you know, in a way, it's it's like you're right. We shouldn't expect consumers to be the ones who drive change. And yet no one else is advocating on our behalf. And that's what I think. I mean, that's why we love the Natural Resources <laughs> Defense Council. Yeah, but I mean, really, it's like groups like yours. But look, at you guys sued and you won and nothing happened. I wouldn't say nothing happened, though. I think, um, again, uh, you got I the think voluntary brought, guidelines. No, I think I think it brought a tremendous amount of attention to this issue. I think, as you mentioned mm. at the top of the show, we're just seeing the media reporting on this so much more. I think all yeah. of these things are mutually reinforcing. I think, you know, um, when consumers go out and demand more of something, companies respond. You start seeing stories about the marketplace changing. When the marketplace changes, you know, you have companies that now have a stake in the the, the regulations changing. And I think that, you know, more and more these things really reinforce one another. Um, and now we're seeing efforts in states like California and Maryland to yes. pass um, legislation to regulate use of these drugs. Um, so, you know, 
Uh, I don't. So we can't don't give we can, up. Yeah, yeah. We can't just throw up our hands. Keep I voting. think. I think. Um, you know, cha- change. Um, change comes slowly, but all yeah. of a sudden, it feels like it's moving fast here. I agree. Um, I do agree with. And that. so I actually think we're winning, and I think we just need to keep pushing. Oh my God! I just love you for that. That was the perfect <laughs> end to this show. Um, so this is Sasha Stashwick from the Natural Resources Defense Council. Thank you so much for joining me today. It was great having you in the studio. Yeah, it was so great much being fun here, face to face. And so, if people want to learn more about this issue. Go right to the switchboard. You've got it's NRDC. It's NRDC.org uh, slash antibiotics, and you right. can find you know that petition I mentioned. A lot of information about this issue and our expert blogs. Um, you can also yeah. follow the expert at, blogs are great, by the way, people. Thanks. Uh, <laughs> I love. Uh, you can also follow us at and at NRDC Food on Twitter, oh, and yeah. we post all of our all of our. Yeah. All of our good stuff up there. And I'll be tweeting this out. So um, thanks to my sponsor, Kane Winery. Thanks, Jack. And I'll see you next week, folks. Thanks for listening. This has been another great episode. (laughs) Stay tuned for the next one. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 